Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Nate. I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, five daughters, and uh, and we have a transit van to match. So we have this big passenger van that we bought during the uh, the uh, lockdown because we realized that was the only way we were going to get out of Northern Virginia. So we just stuck everybody in a van, so we'd do big trips. Actually, like your pastor, to Colorado and, and elsewhere. Um, uh, and, and let me just say on the front end, uh, it is great to be a partner with you at Reformed Theological Seminary, that we get to be a partner with you in the ministry of the gospel. Um, your partnership with us is crucial. We kind of see ourselves, I mean, we're a parachurch ministry. We're not a part of a church per se. But we are serving the local churches, and the way that you all come alongside us, Nate, you said that we pour into you, the way you all have poured into us, both in personal relationships with your pastors, with, with Jason and Nate and Johnny, and also just the way you have supported us in the D.C. area. We, we, we're cur- firmly committed uh, at RTS to this idea that people don't need less pastoral preparation these days, that we need more, particularly facing everything that we're all facing in the world today. And um, we can't do that without churches like you coming alongside us. And so we just are deeply, deeply indebted to you, and, and thank you. And let me also just uh, encourage you and, uh, and honor you in that you give your pastor a sabbatical. That is a deep, that's an incredible gift. And for him to be able to get some time and just pull away for a moment and have some sort of extended time of rest and and sabbating, as we say in the academic world, because professors get sabbats too, uh, which just means to stop, <laughs> just means to cease for a moment. And it's such a gift, and it's such a good thing, and, and a sign, really, of, of your love and your trust in him. So, tell you what, let's do this. What I want to do is read out of Psalm 121, but let me give you a little bit of an intro first before we do that, then we'll read it, and we'll pray. Um, so if, if I had to pick a favorite book, and I, I hate doing that because at different seasons in life, different books kind of stand out. Like I, I say, I don't really have a life verse, but I do have like seasonal verses, you know. Um, but if I had to pick a favorite book, you know, if I had to have my desert, you know, my desert island Bible book, hopefully that, that never happens. Um, but I think I probably would pick the Psalter because the Psalter is so rich, it's so filled with theology, and yet it's, it's theology in action, as it were. Um, uh, in, in, in academic circles, we talk about how it's performative, and you'll even see today, you can't read the Psalms without doing the Psalms, right? Because it's in first person, it's in second person, it's kind of, you know, as soon as you start doing it, it's not about a thing, it is the thing, right? And I love the Psalms for that reason. And if I had to pick on this proverbial desert island a part of the Psalms to take with me, I probably would take this little section that we're looking at today, which is called the Songs of Ascents, okay? The Songs of Ascents. And the Songs of Ascents are really this section of the Psalms, Psalm 120 to 134, that some people have called a Psalter within a Psalter, okay? A Psalm book within a psalm book. And they are talking about a kind of life or a journey of faith, these songs of ascents. And you can even see there in your Bible at the very beginning of those psalms, it says, a song of ascents, or a song of degrees, depending on what translation you're looking at. 
And if I had to pick one of those psalms, again, on this terrible desert island that I can only have so much text with me, um, if I had to pick one, it probably would be Psalm 121. I love this psalm. Uh, it's partly because, you know, at, at an early age uh, at my church, we sang a hymn that had that song. And then, of course, there was the more recent sort of rewording of that, uh, of this psalm for uh, a, a kind of more of a contemporary style. And both, both are dear songs, and they're songs that, you know, we used to sing to our daughters as we were putting them to bed at night. And... Um, your parents of little kids know that we were talking. Nate and I were talking earlier about how that's kind of when you get your devotions in during uh, the time of having young children. Is when you're laying there in a dark room singing songs and you know saying Bible verses to your kids to help them fall asleep. Um, so I love this psalm. I think it's a great psalm. I think it's very practical and very theologically rich. Okay, so let's let's read that together. This is song or Psalm 121. It's a song of ascents. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you, will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's open up in prayer. Heavenly Father, we read your word because you tell us to read your word, and you tell us that it will change us. And so we pray that as we are reading it, that we would not just merely uh, think about these things in, in kind of an academic or merely intellectual way, but that as we read these things, that your spirit would be at work in our reading, because you promise us that your spirit will be at work in the preaching of the word. And we pray that as your spirit is at work, it would help us to rightly hear this as your word to rightly evaluate it and appreciate it as such, and that, dear Lord, that you would also give us an ability to understand not only what it means kind of in its ancient setting from which it comes to us, but that we would understand it for our lives and for our worship, that we might know where our help comes from as well. Dear Lord, we pray that in the power of the Spirit of Christ, you would bless this discussion, this reading, this, uh, this sermon, uh, that it would be to your glory and to the honor of your church, and to our benefit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, of course, the question that arises right away is, what does it mean for a song to be a song of ascent, right? What does it mean for it to be a song of ascent? And this is an ascent like a going up, and that's kind of literally what the Hebrew word behind it means. It's actually a word that's related to the word that is used for the, the, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, that you read about in the Bible. And actually, the word for burnt offerings isn't burnt anything. The word for burnt offerings is a going up thing, right? It's, it's a smoke, usually. People think it's probably referring to the smoke that goes up to heaven. And the idea being there in this kind of vivid picture is that the Lord receives the smoke and he smells the worship and the repentance of his people. And it's like a, it's like a precious incense or a perfume in his nose when he hears the worship of his people. 
So this is a similar kind of going up, it seems like. It's, it's a song or a series of songs that are dealing with this idea of ascending, okay? But it still raises the question, what kind of ascent is it? Okay, and some people say this is, well, it's, it's like a musical ascent, okay? And this is true. I mean, in the Bible, there actually is quite a lot of concern for worship leaders and how they worship and operate and do worship. As a matter of fact, the author of Chronicles even calls worship leaders prophets, He says, all the prophets gathered there to lead the people in worship, okay? And he's talking about Levites and people with with musical instruments. So it's possible that this is musical. And as a matter of fact, this is actually what Calvin, John Calvin, the the old church theologian, this is what he thought. He he understood. And that's why some people translate this as degrees, because maybe it's something like tonal degrees or like a tonal lifting up of the voice or something like that. But other people say, well, there seems to be more to it than merely a musical instruction. Some people say this is actually more of kind of a a being outside of the land and coming into the land. Maybe, Maybe the ascent is ascending up out of exile to Jerusalem. And they've got, a, they've got an argument there, because if you think about it, if you actually read the whole Psalms, you realize there is a kind of outward to inward directionality. As a matter of fact, if we read last, uh, this is the previous Psalm, Psalm 120, and we read it, we noticed that he says, I'm in the tents of Meshech and Kedar. And you might say, well, where are those tents? Well, those are tents, those are areas that are outside of the land. So what's he saying? He's lifting up his first song of a going up, and he's outside of the tents, and then where is he now? He's, he's in the wilderness. He's looking to the hills. He's wondering about where his hope comes from. But he hasn't yet arrived in Jerusalem. And then where is he going to be in the next few psalms? He's going to say, standing here. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Standing here in Jerusalem. Because what has he done? He's gone from outside of the land. And he's ascended up into Jerusalem. And so maybe, maybe this is a song of exiles returning out of Babylon and coming back to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Then there's another take. Okay. And the other take could be this. Maybe these are actually, maybe they're not, they're not exiles per se. But maybe these are the pilgrims who are making their way up to Jerusalem three times a year to do the festival. If you've read much of the Bible, you know that they had these three major feasts every year. And one of the things you had to do is go to Jerusalem to participate, to represent your family and participate in this feast. And so maybe this is a journey from outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem so that you can participate in worship. We actually know there are other psalms that seem to talk about this too, where people are going through the valleys and, and, the, and the, uh, the canyons, and they're making their way up into the hill country of Israel so they can worship in Jerusalem. And so maybe this is kind of like a pilgrim song. And then lastly, and this is maybe the most specific interpretation, it's actually the interpretation that the Babylonian or the Jewish Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud argues, and actually Martin Luther argued for this view too, but that these are actually psalms that were said by priests during those said feasts as they were walking up to the temple. There's 15 of the psalms, and if you actually read closely, do a close reading on the building of the temple, you'll see that there's actually 15 steps that go up from the ground to the porch, the portico, uh, (laughs) the portico of the temple, okay? And it was understood that it's possible that the priests would gather, and at each step... 
they'd step up and they'd say another psalm. And think about it, it would work because these are all very short psalms. They're things that you could do while people are walking and it wouldn't take all day. An interesting thing is that we actually don't know. Okay? This, is, this is kind of lost to us. And there are parts of the Bible that are like that, parts of the Bible that hint at a deeper reality, but we don't know exactly what the reality is. But I think we can say this. Whether you're talking about pilgrims or returnees from the exile or priests who are going up the steps one by one and entering into the sanctuary, there is this kind of clear motion from being away from the Lord and longing for Him, okay, and being with the Lord and giving thanks. And it's for this reason that these songs, the songs of ascents, have been kind of precious in the life of the church. Because in many ways, they're about the journey of faith, right? It's about the journey of life. It's about that moment that you awoke to the faith and you cried out to the Lord, I'm in the tents of Meshech and Kedar of my sin and unbelief. And the Lord heard my prayer. And now as I'm coming to him, as I'm, as I'm approaching him, whether it's Sunday morning worship or it's in my devotionals or it's just yearning for the new heavens and the new earth, that time, like John the Apostle says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to be with you again. Whether it's that time that you're yearning for, you're on the journey. You're on the way. You're on the road. Or it's that moment, and maybe it is. Maybe it's that moment. Maybe that happened right there that day of your conversion. When you first met Jesus, when you felt your heart, like those apostles on the road to Emmaus, says that their hearts burned within them. Maybe it's, maybe it's that moment you realize, he's in me, he's with me, his spirit indwells me. Whatever that journey is, and I think it's actually all of those things. I think it's that first coming to the Lord and feeling the burden of your sin pulled off of you and, and having your eyes uh, uh, opened to uh, the reality of your salvation, or whether it's coming in here every Sunday as you're ascending the steps up to Portico Church and you're saying, standing here in Jerusalem, because this is where Paul says the temple of the Lord is. It's in this body, and it's in your heart. Or, or maybe, maybe it's longing for, because of physical ailment and wounded relationships, and just the conflict of the world that we see around us, there are those times where you're longing to be with Christ, and there will be one day when every one of these tears will be wiped away, and the imperishable will be put on over the perishable. And your body that, that drags on you and ages and decays will finally be made alive. And you'll say, standing here in the gates of Jerusalem, I was so glad when they said, let's go to this place. You see, the songs of ascents are about the life of faith. It's about yearning towards our Lord. It's about approaching Him in worship. And it's interesting because they actually, if you read these songs... They, they aren't deeply theological in the sense of having a lot of theological ideas. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but some psalms are quite theological. They really get into sort of the heart of what is the temple and what is the sanctuary and how does God dwell there and how did he create the universe. And interestingly, this song, these songs don't really have that. These are kind of simple songs. They're, they're simple songs that maybe you know, that farmers could sing. 
Where do I look for my hope? It doesn't say up in the heavenlies, in the divine assembly, you know, where the angels reside, or something like we might expect from like Psalm 104, another one of the Psalms. But what does he do? I just look up to the hills. I look up to the horizon on my journey because my help is just beyond it, but I know it's coming. These are very simple terms and simple language. It's almost folksy. And it's possible that that's because it was meant to be read or to be recited by regular people making their way out of exile, making their way on the pilgrim, the pilgrimage, making their way up to the temple. So what is this song? This song, Song 124, is a song of someone who is confident in the Lord. Notice that he doesn't say, where could my help come from? It's possible. Maybe it will come from the Lord. Right? What is he saying? He's in the midst of the valley. He's looking up to the horizon. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know about how in the mountain region, you're always kind of down in the valley and they're surrounded by hills. If you haven't been to Israel, think of like California. Okay, it's actually kind of very similar <laughs> in terms of, in terms of uh, you know, climate. Okay, where are you? You're standing there and you're looking and all the horizon always has hills along it, right? You can imagine as a pilgrim, you're on your way and you're down in the valley and you're wondering, am I going to run out of water? Is the sun going to be too much for me? Is, is the moon going to expose me at night so that the, the outlaws and the, the, the thieves on the road can find me and find my encampment? But what does he do? He says, I'm not afraid because I look to my horizon and I see the outline of those hills and I know that's where my help comes from. He's confident that the Lord knows him and that the Lord will help him. So there's a little bit of kind of an assumption underneath all of this, and we have to pause for a moment because this is an assumption that we want to pass by, and it's not something that our world recognizes. And the assumption is this, that God knows you, He knows where you are, and He is your help. He's your reinforcements. He's your empowerment. And I think actually people struggle with this idea, this idea that God knows us, that He's aware of us. And sometimes it can sound kind of righteous why someone might feel that way, right? You can sound sort of like, well, I'm so little. I'm so small. I mean, why, why would God pay mind to my little issues? It can sound kind of godly almost in a way to think that God's so great. He's got the concerns of this world. He's thinking about, you know, nations and, 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 and grand cosmic events. Why would he care about my broken relationships? Why would he care about my anxieties that wake me up in the middle of the night? And one thing that the psalmist knows that we have to be reminded of is that the hope of our God throughout the Scripture, I'm not just talking about Jesus, we're not just talking about the Holy Spirit, but our hope throughout is that God, while He is at once cosmic and global and ruling over the whole of the universe, is also intimately concerned with your life and your anxieties and your fears and your hopes and your dreams. Think about the way that Isaiah, so this is the prophet Isaiah, as he's, he's talking to the people who are in ex exile, and he's saying, this is where you should find your hope. This is in Isaiah 40. This is right after the passage where he says, comfort, comfort my people. You know, uh, a voice is crying out, make straight in the desert the way of the Lord. This is what John the Baptist will quote later and say, this is fulfilled in Jesus' coming. Right? So Isaiah is giving that prophecy, and as he's giving hope to people and saying, comfort, comfort, be comforted, 
be comforted. You know what the cause for his comfort is, the reason? He says this. This is Isaiah 40, verse 11. Because God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather its lambs in his arms. He will carry them close to his bosom and gently lead those who are young. Think about the intimacy of that picture. He's saying the God of the universe, the one who right now is as present in Fairfax, Virginia, and Arlington, Virginia, as he is like at the third level down of the clouds on Jupiter, okay? The God who is as present in Washington, D.C. as he is in the farthest away quasar also lifts you up who are young and who are weak, and he holds you in his bosom like a shepherd who is tending to his lambs. Now, by the way, Isaiah is not ignorant of that other side of God, too, because look what he says next in verse 12. Because who, after all, has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, has marked off the heavens with a span, has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and has weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in the balance? He's not saying, oh, God, it's all personal. God's not global. He's only personal. He's saying God is somehow, and yes, we have to say somehow because we don't know how this is true, but we just know that this is the kind of God that we worship. He is both cosmic and global, and he can be concerned with Afghanistan and Russia and the United States and at the same time be concerned intimately with the thing that woke you up last night. You see... It may sound righteous to say, why would God care about me? But the, God, the, the, the authors of the Bible, the psalmist here is saying, because he does and he can. You see, we can be confident in God's help because he is both grandly transcendent, but he is also deeply present in our lives. He's both greater than you can possibly imagine and more intimately mindful of every part of your life than you could possibly hope for. So one thing that we might do is we might say, well, God's not really present because why would he care about somebody like me? Uh, But there's another way in which we might think, well, God doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about my struggles. And that might be that we have actually kind of an overly naturalistic view of the world, right? You might actually think like, well, this is, you know, we we talk in here. I mean, I go to a church. I'm at Portico. We're we're kind of, we're Bible people. I can read the Bible. We take it seriously. So I know how to talk spiritually, But isn't that all kind of just a metaphor for like our emotional state or something like that? I mean, after all, I can't can't touch this spiritual realm that I'm talking about. The philosopher Charles Taylor says, people in the modern age are stuck in what he calls the imminent frame. And what he means by that is as if we're stuck with these blinders on so that all we can see or think or yearn for are the things that we can touch and feel and hear. And we've lost a sense of the transcendent. I'd actually argue for many of your friends in the area here, this is kind of where they're living, right? If you can show me how I can experience it, then I'll believe it. But otherwise, uh, it really has no bearing on my life. Maybe even being in the church, you've seen how spiritual language or spiritualizing can be used to abuse or to cover over uh, the sin or the scandal in the church. And that's absolutely true. People can abuse these things. Yet I would pray that you wouldn't have that cynicism turn you away from the reality that you do have a hope 
that is beyond the mountains. You do have a hope that's not right there in front of you, but you can trust in it, and it's sure, and you can look to the horizon of your life. You can look to the horizon of this physical world and recognize that there is a help beyond the mountains. It's hard to overstate the role of the spiritual in the Christian life. You see, for the psalmist, he doesn't see or experience the help, but he knows it's there. And the same is true for you. No matter what your greatest anxiety is, your greatest fear, I kind of go back to the conversations I've had with my children, putting them to bed at night, and they say, you say God is with me, but I can't see him and I can't feel him. That's a practical question, right? And I'd like, I wish I could tell them, yeah, you won't deal with this when you grow up. But you're going to have the same concern when you grow up too. And yet, the Bible is teaching us here that we have a hope beyond the horizon. The Scripture is teaching us here is that the reality of Christ's Spirit in your life means that you have a shared DNA, not only with one another as the church, as the body of Christ, but you have a shared spiritual DNA with your Savior Himself. You have been united with Him through the power of the Spirit. And while you may feel alone, you may feel as if the world is, is, is you know, uh, standing up against you, you might feel as if you could be overcome. You are actually, as Christ said, says, living in union with him. He says, when you suffer, be reminded, I suffered first. Paul says when he's in jail, when he's suffering and he's being slandered and his reputation is being dragged through the mud, he says, I'm experiencing now the sufferings of Christ. It's amazing what he says. I'm participating in the sufferings of Christ and I rejoice as a result. See, that's the spiritual reality that stands behind all of this is that even though the help may to us seem like it's beyond the mountains, it is very real and it's very true. So we don't want to have an overly naturalistic view of the world that makes us ignore the heavens. It makes, it makes us ignore the spiritual side of our lives. And then there's a third reason. So if the first reason we might not trust that God pays mind to us is that we think, well, our, our, our lives are so small. Why would he care about us? And, and the second reason why we might not trust in the Lord caring about us is we might say, well, is there really anything beyond all of this around us anyways? I mean, isn't that kind of Pollyannish for me to say? And the third reason we might not trust in the Lord to be mindful of us, and I suspect this may be mostly true of Christians, not so much of non-Christians, is that we feel that maybe God is punishing us. Maybe I'm down in this valley because I did something wrong and I deserve it. Maybe, maybe it's that I deserve all of this and God is uh, uh, neglecting me. He has abandoned me because if he knew what I know about myself, then he would know that I'm not worth it. He would know that I deserve this. I would just say to you who are struggling with this, while there is truth that there can be consequences for our unbelief, there can be consequences for our sin, if you are in Christ, if you have repented, and you have turned to him in faith, even the consequences of your sin, even the struggles that you experience because of your own blowing it, you know, your own messing up, according to the author of Hebrews, this is not unto death for you. This is not unto absence from God, but this is unto life. 
If you're struggling because you did something and you're the reason for the broken relationship, you're the reason for the difficult situation, you're the one because of your, just your hang-ups, because of your addictions, because of your, because of your uh, failures, you're the one who's caused the situation to come to bear. The author of Hebrews says this, and guess what? God loves you so much that he's raising you up like a loving parent raises up their son or their daughter. I think about, again, as a parent, you think about in training and raising up your children. I, I remember one time my, my, my fourth daughter was playing in the yard when we lived in Florida, and she, you know, living, like she was about two or three years old, and she's kind of toddling around, and suddenly I turn my head, and she toddles toward the street as a car's coming, right? And I see her and I say, no, <laughs> and I run and I grab her up and I hold her in my arms and pull her quickly away from the street as the car goes by. And what does she do? She looks at me in the face and she starts crying. She can't imagine her dad would run over and pick her up so quickly <laughs> and yell, no. <laughs> That's the worst thing she can imagine. And yet, of course, there is a worse thing, isn't there, than that. I think so often, sometimes we experience the consequences, we experience the discipline of the Lord, and we think, this is the worst thing I can imagine, Lord. And he goes, no, don't you know? I'm raising you up. I'm training you to walk in my ways. I'm leading you in the path of life, not in the path of death, not in the path of condemnation. So even as Christians, or especially as Christians, when we suffer because of the consequences of our own sin, and we definitely do. That, that, that's not what it means to be forgiven, that you won't ever feel the consequences of your sin. You will. But if you are in Christ, then it is always and everywhere unto life. So you too, even if you're in the valley of your own making, can look to the hills and say, where does my help come from? So this is the prayer of the Christian who is confident in his salvation. Help comes from the mountains. It comes from beyond his sight, out of you, but he knows it's there. Lastly, just as an impression of this, I, this idea of looking beyond the mountains, I, I had a good friend, he's actually a good friend of uh, your pastor, uh, Jason Connor, as well. He passed away of cancer a few years ago, and I remember as he was about to die, this was weeks before he died, I remember talking to him, and he said, I, I, don't, I don't like this. I don't want it this way. This isn't how I would have it. He said, I do trust in my Savior's perfect plan. This isn't how I would have done it, but I'm not him. And there's a, there's a deep peace in that. In the midst of grieving, it was an honest grief, but there's also the peace that beyond the mountains, there is hope and there is help. Notice, too, the help comes from the Lord. It's not the help come, came because I looked within myself and I found an inner hope. And, and by the way, this is the most deeply countercultural thing in this psalm. The idea that where does your help come from? Where does your justification, where does your strength for the journey come from? It's not from within, but from without. Okay? You ever watch the shows that your kids watch on TV? Every single one of them is teaching another doctrine, another gospel. It says, look within yourself. It's all there. And I get what they're saying. It's not, it's good. You should be confident in who the Lord's made you to be. That's absolutely true. But where does your help come from? It's not from me just believing more and more in my own strength. 
For the psalmist, he recognizes the truth, which is that the help is from without. It's from the Lord. The psalmist knows that his deepest human need, his deepest spiritual need, can only be found in God. A good friend of mine is a counselor, and he he, uh, was telling me a story about this kind of lesson that he had taught, and um, it, it was out of the Gospels, and it just stuck with me, so I wanted to share it with you to illustrate this point. Uh, he was talking about, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, if you ever have read through that Gospel, you know that there's a series of stories that go one after another, and there are these examples of Jesus being somewhere with his disciples, and then people, as they're watching things happen, they, they respond and they say something like, Jesus, how can this be? And my friend was pointing out that each one of these instances is Jesus taking his disciples to a place of fear. And that fear might be the Pharisees who are going to reject them socially and make them anathema in their communities. Or that place of fear may be the the ocean where the waves are coming, tossing to and fro in the Sea of Galilee and they're about to drown and they even cry out, Lord, don't you care? We're dying here. Or the place of fear may be on a lonely shore with the demon-possessed man who's scavenging amongst the tombs. And what's interesting about this story is that in each place, Jesus takes them to their place of fear, and then he shows how he is the greater power. He's the greater force than their fear. At each time, it seems as if Jesus is saying, I know you fear these things, but what you don't realize is that you should be fearing me. I am the really frightful thing. You thought the demon-possessed man was frightful, but when the demons see me, they fall down and worship. You thought the oceans were frightful, but I talk to the oceans like they're a child and say, peace be still. You thought you knew what you should be afraid of, but you should be afraid of me. But guess what? I love you and I'm for you. So how does that reframe all of your fears? He said, it's like God is taking them all on these little fear field trips. He says, check out, here's a fearful thing. Look, I'm greater. Here's another fearful thing. Look, I'm more frightful, and I love you, and I'll die for you. You see, our help comes from beyond ourselves. It comes from the Lord. So let me talk about three ways in which this psalm tells us that God's help comes to us. First of all, God's help empowers us. What does he say in verse 3? He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And what's important about this is that they're talking again about walking, right? They're talking about a journey. You're going to Jerusalem. You're going to Zion. You're walking, but guess what? He will establish your walking. He'll keep your foot from slipping. You won't twist your ankle. You won't fall off the side of the path. And if you've ever seen some of these trails in the Shephelah, the high country of Israel, you know, these paths are cliffs on either side. And as you're going, he'll keep your foot firm. We talk about saints persevering. This is what he's saying. If you want to persevere in the Christian life, it's going to be because God doesn't let your foot slip. But what else? God doesn't let your foot slip. Slip because he never slumbers. He doesn't sleep. He's not like Baal who has to go off and find rest or go relieve himself. Remember that story of Elijah with the Baalite priest? And he says, maybe Baal's somewhere else relieving himself and he can't hear you. But our God isn't that way. He doesn't rest. He doesn't need to rest. 
and he empowers us, and he doesn't ignore us. Psalm 1 says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish, because if he's not watching you, if he's not acknowledging you, then your way will perish. But if you are the way of the faithful, if you know that your help comes from him, then he will not rest in his watching over you. So God's help is our empowerment. It strengthens us for the journey. But notice, it's also our protector. It watches over us. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade by your right hand, and he's the sun that will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. You see, the Lord watches over us. If you're in the desert, the heat of the sun might exhaust you. It might dry you out. It might hinder you on the journey. But notice, the Lord blocks the sun from you. He covers you from the heat. And at night, when the thieves are looking for you and looking for your encampment that they might set upon you when you're resting, what does the Lord do? He shades you from the moon so that they can't see you in the valley. Again, the psalm assumes a certain level of exposure. It assumes that this pilgrim, this person on the journey, is in some kind of danger. There's, there's kind of enemies out there. Notice the Bible doesn't say, it's, it's not like kind of like a zen rejection of there being any kind of opposition. The scriptures affirm the fact that we actually are living in light of exposure and danger and threat. But God protects us. Our place is secure in this world. It doesn't mean we won't run into struggles. I was talking to a friend of mine who works for a large company, and this company is pushing this, uh, this um, product towards, you know, out into the market, but it has to get approved by all the government agencies. And if this thing doesn't get approved, then the last three years of everything his company has done will be a waste. There's so much riding on it, and they could, they could speak, you know, they could, they could present on his product at any time. And I was talking to him, and he said, yeah, I've got a lot of anxiety. A lot of people work for me. There's a lot of money on this. There's a lot of people's livelihoods that are tied up in it. And he said, but you know what? No matter what happens with this, we've done our best. We've done what the Lord gave us the gifts to do. But he said, I know that my place in this world is not at risk. I know that my place before the creator of the universe is not something that I could lose as a result of this. My place before God is secure in Christ because God the Father receives me as if I am Christ. And that changes the way you deal with the true and the real anxieties and fears in this life. You see, we wait on the Lord, but we wait with hope. So God's help empowers us It protects us. And then lastly, for the psalmist, what's important here is that God's help is eternal. It's an eternal help. It doesn't come to an end. You can't overuse his help. You can't outsin his help, as we just sang earlier and we discussed earlier. You can't get away from his grace towards you. As a matter of fact, the gap that is opened up between the person and the character of Jesus Christ and the horror of his death and the judgment experienced on the cross, the distance between these two are so great, the chasm that opens up between these two is so wide that it can swallow up not only every sin you've ever committed, but every sin you ever will commit. You can't outfail your salvation in Christ. Verse 7 and 8, 
the psalmist says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. We sometimes experience this in the present. There's been moments where you've come to that moment of deliverance. I remember uh, working on my doctoral dissertation and having the stress of this dissertation hanging over my shoulder and the, you know, the money and the financial woes that came from that and having a young family growing up and thinking, please, Lord, just get me to the end. <laughs> get me to the end. Is this worth it? And finally passing. I passed my defense and going out to my car and sitting downtown D.C. outside of Catholic University and sitting in my car and crying tears of joy because of the relief. This can happen in this life. You'll experience this from moment to moment, but don't forget this. That relief that you experience in this temporal setting is just a glimpse of that great eternal relief that you will have in the new heavens and new earth. When all of these sad things, all of these difficulties that you experience now won't become untrue. I love J.R. Tolkien, but I don't like that quote. Um, It's not that sad things become untrue so much, but that all of those sad things, all of the struggle will turn to glory. And we see this in in the person of Jesus Christ. So God's help empowers us, it protects us, and lastly, it is eternal. It is everlasting. And I want you to know that we can pray this prayer. We can pray the prayer of Psalm 121, not only because Jesus has won for us our salvation, so we pray it in him because of what he's done for us. That's true. Okay? That's absolutely true. You can come and say, I am in Christ. I believe in him as my Lord and Savior, and so I can look to the mountains, and I can see where my help comes from. But you can also pray this prayer because as, you, as those who are united in Christ, you're praying like he prayed. This is how Jesus prayed too. As he's about to go to the cross, what does he do? He doesn't say, well, I guess this is the next step in redemptive history, so I need to go do this now. What does he do? He says, he says Father, watch over my friends. Give me the strength. I don't know if I can handle what's coming. This is Christ and his humanity. I don't know if I can drink this cup, but I trust in your perfect will, my God. You can pray this because Jesus prayed it, and you can pray it in him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us now as we proclaim our Savior. We proclaim his death until he comes again by participating in this Lord's Supper. I pray that you'd watch over us and bless us in it. Dear Lord, that we might be deeply encouraged in our union with Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.